most wet women don't like most, most men. men okay true and if you guys don't believe me when polled gen z all right this is people born between 1995 to 2012 all right women rank men seventh place behind travel career education experiences and starting a family so men are at almost the bottom of the totem pole all right when it comes to marriage and then uh, millennial women, right? Women in my age range, they're born 1981 to 1996, who aren't even hot anymore like that, okay? Still rank finding a man at fourth place behind careers and education. And God forbid, you make less money than them, you're screwed, bro. So, how are you? I'm all right. Uh, we had what I call fool's spring here in the Midwest, and now it's rainy and dark again. Oh, I'm actually jealous of that because we have a, a full spring, almost summer feeling today yesterday the day before it's been in the 80s and it's too hot for me no i love that i i don't know it's just for some reason like my neighborhood in chicago like just doesn't lend itself well to it being gray and i it's kind of frustrating because i feel like if i lived in a different neighborhood it would be like cozy and feel like halloween but instead mm -hmm. it just feels like depressing <laughs> yeah i know what you mean i don't know i i always feel cozy with the gray and rain but especially i'm kind of close to the ocean and there's a nice little sea mist the ocean always looks more alive when it's gray i don't know maybe i just hate the sun maybe i'm just a misanthrope which is a, maybe <laughs> a good a good segue into our topic today i don't know i don't know if you're a misanthrope i am nama cates and you are Catherine d and we met online Today we're going to be, how should I put this? I think like walking in the shallow end of the manosphere. So it's not going to be like a robust, full-throated history of the manosphere, but we will be dabbling a little bit. Yeah, it, it'll be like a kind of like a primer and, and maybe we'll do a little bit more than, than wade with certain things. You know, with, with previous episodes where we've done kind of big topics, some of the feedback has been that, you know, we could have gone a lot further in depth into specific areas of the topic. And this is true with the Manosphere too. Like I'm sure there are many aspects of it that we will be covering in future episodes in more detail. But for today, like you said, waiting with a very, a good guide that you put together of some iconic Manospherian posts. Yeah. Maybe like a good place to start is how the Manosphere got on our radars. I don't remember like like distinct time like when I realized what it was I feel like I, I sort of had been like aware of sort of like pick up artistry blogs from like a very young age like middle school and then I started to learn more about it into high school and it's funny because and you could speak more intelligently on this but you know the encelosphere sort of cascaded from pickup artistry as far as I understand it like it was a reaction to that yeah um, and my own sort of online identity especially when I was younger, was also a reaction to the manosphere. The manosphere, like all of these spheres, you know, the, the dissident right being another one of them, um, and celosphere is super diverse. And I like to think of them as ecosystems with many different species and flora and fauna that, you know, are all kind of in the same geography, but aren't necessarily the same thing. So my entry point really was like pickup artists and like, plate spinning and rating women on a 10 point scale and you know things like this mm. and <laughs> i very quickly was like oh these guys are right this is how men view women and but it made me really bitter i was like this oh, sucks this is like this is putting to words like my worst suspicions about men and at the time there was like small groups of women who some of them 
agreed. And we're trying to like, they were like creating their own sort of quotas to, uh, you know, find a man within like the game structure. And then there was yeah. another group of women who were super embittered and, you know, it was very like looks-based self-hatred. And anyone who is familiar with my <laughs> online upbringing knows which of those two groups I was in. Um, and in case you don't, it was, it's the latter one. It was a super unhealthy perspective of the world. And it's, it's funny because when I look back at some of the things I wrote then, and I, I you know, I can't be emphatic about this enough. I was like 15. This isn't like, uh, this isn't right. me, even at like 20. I was saying some really crazy shit. Like I, I had internalized this stuff to such an extent where I started off at some women are hot and like whatever, you know, just all sorts of nonsense. And I took it to the point where the only pure kind of love is between two men. And I'm like, I don't even know how I got, like, it was just so perverse and like warped. And thankfully I wasn't, wasn't like that black pilled for that long, but it's funny because I'll see young people sort of reach that same logical conclusion on Twitter. And I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, man, I've been there. And, um, the really sort of, you know, sad thing. And, you know, the last thing I'll say before I, I, I hand the mic to you, Nama, is I, I've been recently getting these like anonymous messages, I think from young women who are like, you don't know what it's like out there. You never experienced this. You have like a geriatric husband, parenthetical, not true, by the way. Um, and I'm thinking it's like, man, if like a therapist got their hands on my 15 year old Zanga or like whatever the hell I was using, I would be like in an institution. If there's one thing I know, <laughs> it is how, how fucking crazy this stuff can make you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was obviously when I was in high school and stuff, I was coming across some content that I recognize now as being proto PUA. All those mm, slightly misogynistic, like the bodybuilder communities online that would get real into looks discussion. You know, now there's language that I can recognize in the Encelosphere. Obviously, this was before then. My actual entry point into it came much, much later, not that long ago, actually, like not much more than five years ago when I was in earnest, like really looking into it to start my podcast and to learn about incels for the show that I did where I was just going to talk to them and still do. And obviously that's included, you know, the Encelosphere and the Manosphere. And, you know, the Manosphere, I'd say now is kind of, uh, it's, there's still PUAs, there's MRAs, the Men's Rights Activists, incels would be included in it. There's MGTOW, men going their own way. I've had, you know, guests on the show that belong to all of those groups. And I like a lot of those people, find them smart, find them entertaining, think they have great points. And I, I really, I understand the manosphere. I understand why it exists. I understand what it's sort of bucking up against, what sort of ideologies it runs afoul of deliberately. Yeah, I, I get it. I get why it exists. And I sort of appreciate like a perspective of someone who's trying to understand the world in this way. But that being said, when I read those posts that you sent, the manosphere posts, I was just like, God, this shit, man. <laughs> it's 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 interesting because I think some of the writers in this sphere sort of get an unfair rap. Like, not that I agree with them, but I think like you could tell that they're trying to kind of work out a worldview. And then you have others where you can tell they're actually just trying to be malicious. Yeah. Or they've kind of like, like the lines blurred, you know, at yeah. some point because they're, 
I, I'd say that the majority of, of the content creators and the known sort of authors in the manosphere, well, they're making money off of it. And, you know, it's their persona, it's their brand. If they're not yet making money, they're like hoping to, or they're at least getting a lot of sort of social capital and likes and things like that and attention. And so it starts to become kind of like a grift. And that's, it's hard for anyone who's in the business of content creation or being a personality or whatever to not kind of fall into that sometimes, like a lot of people do. Um, so I think the line gets blurred, like a lot of incel content creators too. I know they're just spouting basically propaganda that they themselves even think is kind of silly or are saying half tongue in cheek. Like, you know, I would say famously, uh, incels.co admin will tweet out things like no pussy, no taxes. And it's like, it's, this is on the past the line, in my opinion of, of satire, but like the people that listen to it don't always really see it that way. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it feels like that feels very true of like every subculture. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it, it couldn't be like more true of, I mean, like incels are sort of a great example of this, but also like any sort of rightist community, like some of the people like truly, when they say these sort of outlandish things, it actually is like a policy position. And I think that's unappreciated, but also, but sometimes it's a gatekeeping mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. Just to like kind of scare people who might be a little soft away. Yeah. And also to, to shock people who are maybe studying it, like journalists and things like that. That's like a big, big part of it sometimes too. And to entertain, but you know, all that being said, when I when I read when I read this content now, then at any point, unless I'm in a certain mood, it's just it's so depressing. And I'm just like, who who is coming up with this shit? Like these all these um, theories and these like who's sitting there worrying about? We'll get into them. <laughs> so sure. maybe that's a good point. We'll sort of we'll get into them. We'll get into all these posts and we'll, you know, all the gory well, details. But so before, before we launch into the post, so what we're going to do, we're going to read a few posts out loud and then, um, you know, discuss our, our uh, opinion of them. But I, I want to do sort of like a very uh, light kind of history of the manosphere. Like I said, it's not going to be like a super um, in-depth one, but just in case anyone isn't familiar with what this is exactly. So there's, since uh since like sort of proto feminism there has been like a male reaction famously you have this writer Otto Weiniger in the early 1900s who wrote this text called Sex and Character which was just kind of like the er misogynist text and some people who have studied the manosphere will say like this is where this you know train of thought really starts this guy i happen to not agree with that although maybe in the notes we could leave some interesting resources from people who do. I see the manosphere as being really like when it really, really starts is actually like post-sexual revolution. And it's a response to women's lib. Um, you know, all the like game and pickup artists, it was more mainstream. Like it really had its moment in the 2000s, but this stuff starts like in the early seventies. And so it is like men's rights um, to some extent, like men going their own way. Um, and this, you know, this is true of uh, like a lot of big internet based communities, many, like many prominent, uh, internet ecosystems and communities sort of have their roots really in the early seventies or sixties and then kind of reshape in the digital age. Antinatalism is like one really good example of that. Rationalism is another good example. Um, but they, you know, they, they pop up in these sort of disparate groups 
on Usenet, in chat rooms, and then they start coalescing into a more cohesive ecosystem in the late 2000s blogosphere. And this is also true of all the many strains of like manosphere thought. So when people talk about the manosphere, it, these things have like antecedents that, depending on how you look at it, you know, can go back 120 years or, or more even. Um, but really it's starting around like 2008. And that is like, a, that is a really important time. Uh, well, even before 2008, maybe like 2004 is more accurate. That's like a really important time for a lot of internet communities and people are starting to find each other. It's much easier for, yeah. for groups to get together in large numbers, right? Like there's tons of things were happening on like Usenet, for example, but like really large numbers that comes with the blogosphere. Um, yes. And, you know, as we mentioned, there's there's a bunch of different groups. There's like men's right activists, men going their own way, insults to some extent, red pillars and like pickup artists. And there's also, and this is a totally different topic, but I'll just mention it because I would be remiss not to. There's a black manosphere, which is on like a totally different tip. And I think they're very yes. interesting, but I've that's had neither. Obsidian <laughs> has been on my show and I've done his a couple times, all black manosphere. He's a great guest. Maybe we should uh, invite, him, invite him here. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he'd be down. <laughs> so some names uh, in the Manosphere, just a few, Rushvi, who had Return of Kings. Return of Kings was interesting because it was slightly more mainstream. Like you would see Return of Kings like linked in like Gawker all the time. It was super mainstream. Yeah, it, it, yeah. it was it, it was interesting because it was sort of like, uh, what's that what's that called? Like Lad Bible or something. It, like it, it, it kind of... It was like yeah. right on the like the razor's edge of like niche and like you know a normie and at their office yeah. job is going to be really yeah. it. <laughs> that, that was what was really interesting about it because I remember just seeing that site all the time and I I would have never thought to associate it with anything like right like I thought I, I thought I remember thinking in college oh Return of Kings is just one of these sites like. I'm blanking on the name. It wasn't complex. It was like, it, it's a site that like quickly disappeared, but it was like one of these sort of lifestyle vice knockoffs. And yeah, I, thought that's exactly. Return, I thought Return of Kings was like the like barstool sports version of that yes. until like, I yep. really, I, I was like, oh wait, this is, <laughs> um, Chateau Hartiste was, uh, you know, into this day is considered like one of the more hardcore ones. I think mm -hmm. that's, I don't know if that's actually really fair to say though. Um, I mean, it's not not that it's uh, easy reading, especially as like a heterosexual <laughs> woman, but uh, it's not like I'm not more like scandalized by Chateau Hartis than I am with like Doll Rock, who no, 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 who no. it is at much that more, was the worst. Yeah, so Doll Rock is is bringing like uh, manosphere ideas within a Christian context. He he is married with children. Um, and Rolo Tomasi is another big name, uh, the rational male. Uh, he, he's still he's still a celebrity. Uh, if you're a if you're a TikToker at all, you'll see him quite often <laughs> flipping if you're flipping through. Um, and then like later on, like sort of after like the big manosphere moment, I think like people, you know, a lot of these guys were like invited on Dr. Phil. Like it it really did pierce the yeah. mainstream. There was also like. Neil Strauss's yeah. The Game. I mean, there's there was all these books, right? Like you could just buy at Barnes and Noble. Yes. And um, the game was like, I mean, I, I still to this day, I don't see what the problem is with the game. Like there was the rules for women and there right. was the game. And you know, the theory and it has the objective of like, okay, you're gonna get more women. And I guess some people were scandalized by that and thought it was misogynistic on its face, but I don't see it that way at all. It's funny because like Whenever I read about the Manosphere and its history, 
It's so strange because I feel like people really take it out of context. I mean, more recently with writers like Louise Perry and like personalities, I mean, still kind of niche, but like Indian Bronson, I think does a good job at this. Um, if anyone, you know, he has a sub stack and he's on Twitter. Um, they kind of take it out of the historical context. And I, what I think is like um, bizarrely missed about it is the sex recession that people talk about a lot must have started much earlier <laughs> because like this idea of like game, I don't think we're going to read it out loud today because it's kind of a tome. There's this famous Chateau Hartiste post that's basically like, here's proof that the sexual marketplace is real, right? Yeah. And from 2012, you know, it's like, there must have been these problems so much earlier than like 2018, which is oh, when it starts. Oh, oh God. Yeah. Just yeah. anyone think that it started in 2018. That's crazy. But yeah, definitely earlier. I think the problems in and of themselves, I mean, the awareness of the problem is kind of the problem. Just the visibility of people's sex lives or lack thereof, I feel like is a large part of it. So just with personal lives increasingly becoming public fodder for whatever, a lot of it is magnified. So that would be social media. That would be early 2010s, mid 2000s. You know, there's that meme, like, if only you knew how bad it really was. And I think that's actually like super true with this because we do like, you know, it is always untethered from context when it's being criticized or discussed. I don't know. I think that's just like, that's sort of the shame and the tragedy of the, the manosphere that it's clearly like, it's not just reacting to feminism, right? It's like reacting to this whole suite of problems that I feel yes. like get, you know, not always overshadowed. And I don't think every academic or advocate or whatever who writes about these topics ignores that. But I think like certainly and sort of like the Dr. Phil tier <laughs> conversation, it's just like completely blown past. When it's actually a lot more salient to their circumstances than feminism. Yeah. And I see it in conversations that bubble up after episodes I have after guests or whatever, where, you know, theme is always like, well, you know, as a result of feminism and women having more choices, there is truth to that, of course, there's truth to all of this, but there's, uh, there's a lot more going on here. So the last thing I'll say before we dive into the first post is so like, where is Amanda Sphere at today? I mean, it almost goes without saying, I feel like People like Live Andrew, and well. <laughs> yeah, people like Andrew Tate, I think, is sort of the most commodified example of yes. this. Yes, and can we just give me one second to do this, okay? This fucking Andrew Tate thing, like astroturfed as hell. <laughs> who the fuck was Andrew Tate before media, mainstream left wing media, decided to get all up in arms and get like a bug up their ass about Andrew Tate? That's again, it was kind of very similar to the Trump phenomenon. Like this was not a household name until you people made it one. There were just there came a point, maybe leading up to his arrest or shortly before it. I, I don't know. It all kind of happened at the same time that his name was just everywhere and like every guardian article and new york times and everybody in cbe encountering violent extremism is suddenly talking about this guy who's just like an internet personality like a shtick you know manosphere douchebag guy whatever now it's like he's become this nefarious radicalizer of young men that requires you know mass expenditures of government funding in order to inoculate our youth from it's just a joke a lot of these guys are still active. Um, They're actually, all amazingly one, still active. Yeah. You know, one, one, and one sort of final note that I actually put in, in my show notes is, um, you know, the mainstream conversation about uh, the Manosphere often like describes them as male supremacists, which is sometimes true, like asterisk with that one, but, or like white nationalist. 
which is, I think, really unfair. It's um, completely wrong. It, completely wrong. Yeah. And so, you know, what what I wrote exactly in my notes was, is like, there's sometimes overlap. And here's where the overlap actually is. Like, you know, certain, not even all white nationalists, like not to, not to white knight, the white nationalists, but certain white nationalists will have, or white supremacists or like what or people on the far right will have like very traditional ideas of gender. And they may pull from manosphere thinkers as a source um, but that doesn't mean that the manosphere is inherently not, um, far not right. Not at all. Yeah. It's, that, its, own, it's totally its own thing. Completely its own thing. And yeah, I've talked about this a lot too. And people used to call incels like a conveyor belt or a gateway to the far right. It's like, no, it's really not at all. Like, yes, of course, there's going to be overlap because these are both sort of counterculture, maybe like you could call them sort of anti-social groups to be a part of now. They're both anti-modernity, you know, anti-feminist, so traditionalist to a large extent. And I think there's a typology or like a characterological predisposition for people that might enter or dabble in one of those groups, a way of viewing the world that might be a little bit more rigid or a little bit more wanting to like categorize and quantify and qualify everything. But I think the mainstream media really struggles to do. And I mean, this is probably giving them too much credit, like assuming that they're good faith. Obviously they aren't always, um, or even most they of the time. They aren't usually. <laughs> yeah, they aren't usually. But like, you know, when you're operating in sort of like this countercultural worldview, you you know, people aren't just pulling, they're, they, they're not making stuff up, right? Like they need sources. So what happens is like, they will go to other alternative sources. And instead of realizing like, okay, there's a network of things outside of the mainstream that have nothing to do with each other, but they're just... They, they're kind of like pushed into one space just by virtue of being counter to right. the institution. Like it, it taints everything. It's like guilt by association. Um, and you see, I mean, you see this even with people like Barry Weiss, who's like completely like espousing like normative things and yeah, might have like, like, a, like a liberal. Yeah. yeah. Right. And it's, it's just because like, there's this like weird thing that happens like, oh, because Barry Weiss is on Substack and then like, you know, Richard Spencer is also on Substack. Barry Weiss is Richard Spencer. I mean, it's just like this weird sort of like. Well, it's because Barry Weiss happens to n- not completely toe the ideological line of like the New York Times all the time, because Barry Weiss has a few questions about this one about, I don't know, gender ideology or whatever. And because Richard Spencer does too, then they're like one in the same. And it's ridiculous. And so right. you take that even further with these sort of countercultural, largely online groups. If you add in the, the bonus accelerant of bans, like social media bans, like Reddit bans, Twitter, TikTok bans, et cetera, that push people, you know, outside of these more mainstream social media spaces and into these less mainstream online spaces like 4chan, 8kun, what have you. And so a lot of the language that people use like the right. slang stuff like from Paul, you know, from 4chan's like poll board and everything will be shared by these groups. The other thing that happens is like when people, if people evolve and if they grow out of certain worldviews, because they've been so gatekept out of more mainstream identities, they also tend to pick and choose from the alternative. So like, you know, this could happen like someone becomes sort of like intellectual dark web, right? Which is sort of like the more benign yep. version of that. Or it's like, okay, you've done the manosphere thing. Uh, maybe you were like a pickup artist. You're over it for whatever reason, but you can't, but you now you're stuck as an internet personality. Yeah. Right? Right. You've been totally locked out of 
this normal like liberal identity or leftist identity. So you have to choose what's left in the like alt ecosystem. Yeah. It's like, okay, maybe I'm an Orthodox Christian now. And, and, yeah. and I don't think it's, I don't think it's necessarily that conscious and people are grifting that hard, but one can imagine like, why is the pipeline always this? And part of the reason is it's like, cause we shun people and we don't, right. let, like we don't let them evolve. So it's yeah, like, like you were, what's left, right? Exactly. <laughs> you like literally kicked out of polite society and this is what you've got left to choose from and to work with. And yeah, yeah. it's a conscious LARP and sometimes it's not. Yeah. And I'm not saying this to like remotely imply that like, you know, someone who's like orthodox is like bad or whatever, but it's it's an alternative identity. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Not in the Seinfeldian sense. Like I literally think that's a fine lifestyle. It's just like, if you wonder like why there seems to be a connection, it's at least, you know, a small part because I think not, it's a, it's a no perfectly fine lifestyle. Yeah. But I don't want anyone to think I accidentally mean that, like, oh, I hate Christian. That's obviously no, not true. <laughs> but as someone who has that in, in my background, it's a bizarre one. Before, I don't know, five, six years ago, you never heard of somebody just like <laughs> converting to Orthodox Christianity and like making it a personality or identity. It's odd to me. I think there's also a huge misunderstanding of what Orthodox Christianity is by a lot of these people. They seem to equate it with Islam, like white tree, all this, not whatever. That's another conversation. But yes, people take on these identities, I would just say with questionable or maybe misguided motives. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. All right. So without further ado, we are going to read just a few of some iconic Manosphere posts. Let's see. Maybe let's start with, with an easy one. Five reasons to date a girl with an eating disorder. Yeah, Return of Kings. Um, so I'm going to read this out loud. This is from, I actually didn't include the, the date in my notes, but I'm pretty sure this is from 2012 because I remember sitting in the complex offices and reading this and triggering myself and spiraling for the following six months. So it must have been post-Occupy. <laughs> Nothing screams white girl problems louder than a good old-fashioned eating disorder. But they're more than that. Eating disorders have been, quite appropriately, declared a luxury reserved for only the most privileged members of the female race. In other words, the presence of one of the classic eating disorders is a reliable predictor of various socioeconomic, cultural, and personality traits in young women, features that, in the end, are desirable to today's American man. In a world where the retail price on the typical Western woman continues to skyrocket, while their quality continues its precipitous decline. There are some real gems to be found in the bargain bin. I've dated several girls with eating disorders in various intensities, and all of these traits have applied to each of them. So there is an asterisk on eating disorder, and it says, and the, here the footnote is, while obesity is in most cases also an eating disorder, this list doesn't apply to emotional eaters, food addicts, and fatties with no self-control. Mm, yes, very Wonderful. <laughs> All right, number one. Her obsession over her body will improve her overall looks. A girl who spends inordinate mental and physical energy on her looks is rarely fat. If you were to get into a long-term relationship with one of these girls, she's also less likely to become complacent about her physique over time. Girls like this are usually deft at properly dressing their body type, which translates into a more stylish girl overall. And because cheap clothing lines, like H&M, are shaped with straight cuts that are less labor-intensive and therefore inexpensive, 
They look good in even the cheapest of shit. (laughs) It's actually true. While they may have a quote-unquote distorted body image on the inside, that usually means staying trim and fit on the outside. Let's not forget that fatties, too, in the majority of cases, have a distorted body image, but in the unattractive direction. Two, she costs less money. You can go out to nice restaurants and order takeout with the confidence that your expense on her will be minimal. In most cases, she'll get a dish like a side salad or just eat a little bit of whatever communal dishes you order. (laughs) If you're a hungry bastard, you can even finish off her plate. Are you going to finish that? Three, one of the sickest things of all on this list. She's fragile and vulnerable. The case has repeatedly and persuasively been made that an inflated ego and an unearned high self-esteem are among the most unattractive traits in a girl. You go girlist confidence, grounded in little more than years of being told she's a unique and special snowflake for no other reason than she was born female, renders a woman into an insufferable turd (sighs) who thinks the world revolves around her. An eating disorder often translates into the direct opposite, a girl who's modest, fragile, and vulnerable. Instead of having to constantly wrestle with a difficult and obnoxious girl, you'll be dealing with a tastefully insecure girl who's eager to please and wants nothing more than your approval. She's quick to apologize for transgressions and will make the extra effort to see you instead of flaking on you constantly. This level of vulnerability often brings out the best in men, whose protector instinct can't help but get activated. Four, probably has money of her own. There aren't too many poor girls with eating disorders. These girls come from money and often continue to wield that spending power right into their adulthoods. Her instinct to please you will translate into her picking up tabs, coming to your door not empty-handed, or buying you little gifts. Five, she's better in bed. It's a well-known fact that crazy girls are exceptional in the sack. A girl with an eating disorder has just the right cocktail of pent-up insecurity, neuroses, and daddy issues to ensure that (laughs) your whole building knows every time you're beating it up. (laughs) Say what you will, a girl with a mild to moderate eating disorder that hasn't excessively marred her appearance is today's best buy in the West's rapidly plummeting dating market. I mean, okay, like (laughs) to me, reading this now, it's actually funny. And I, I read it as a satire. <laughs> I I think it's it's actually it's really funny satire and social commentary. And it's so absurd to me that it's satirical, like probably has money of her own is funny. Like, you know, that she won't order much at a restaurant, so she's less expensive. It's a dark sense of humor, I think. And and I can appreciate that. Yeah, I I mean, I think he was being irreverent, but I don't think he was joking. I happen to have a very dark sense of humor. It's one of the reasons I was interested in incels. With a dark sense of humor, there's always truth in the jokes. You're looking at things that are very sad and pretending they're not sad in a way. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I I see where you're coming from. I think my problem with this, like this post in particular, is like, so this was very much still is a very popular train of thought for a lot of guys. I think maybe less so these days, but like there is a very pervasive sort of like eating disorder fetish that is just so, I mean, I have, I have such a problem with it on so many levels. And I've noticed this more like in maybe the past five years, some women sort of lean into it and sort of turn it into this aesthetic and it kind of pits women against other women. One, two, I mean, just on its face, it's it's horrific because eating disorders, like there's like the 
manosphere eating disorder imaginary which is like yeah. this like fragile girl who's like manic pixie dream girl kind right, of right like only hungry for your cock which is it, it, yes. but the reality of eating disorders is so i mean it's physically and psychologically like one of the most painful things one of the most deadly also it's yeah i mean and i mean the misunderstanding of like what an eating disorder is like another thing you see in sort of this type of discourse is like a shaming of people with bulimia bulimics die you know i don't want to i don't want to get too like angry sort of feminist on this but it's like this shit's like super lethal and like you never leave your eating disorder you, you have moments when you are more on top of things but like shit like this like even as a joke repeatedly makes people relapse and right. they die and i don't know i'm just maybe like too passionate about this but no, like no 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 you're absolutely right about it i was going to to say that a few years ago i probably did come across this and read it all as just kind of like post-ironic humor and that it's so ridiculous that I could see it being like, you know, like jokes about cancer or about like World War II. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and I, I totally I totally agree with you. There, there is sort of like finding humor in it. But having a daughter now, that's the other thing is reading all of this stuff with a daughter, like a baby girl, child who's going to be entering the world and received and perceived by people who read this content, different story. Like it's disgusting. The fact that there are men, young men that take this literally and fetishize girls with eating disorders and young women that read this and, and might become sick as a result of it. You know, I don't want to alienate our audience or anything, but like, I don't want anyone to feel like I'm yelling at them, but just having like been in communities uh like being in like women's only like spaces where women are talking to other women about their struggle with body image or their eating disorders um men who read shit like this and agree with it enter those spaces and groom young women in it and that's i mean that's the other thing that really bothers me like i remember i was in a live journal group um it must have been 2005 um, and the live journal group, like, honestly had like a, it was sort of an attention seeking name, but it was like mostly like middle school girls. And there was always guys coming in and trying to reach out to, I mean, probably some of the girls were men, to be honest. And, yeah. and just like thinking back at that, like, you know, guys are like, oh, can I draw you? And it just like, this was a space Ooh. where like women were like, I just finished like outpatient treatment. And, you know, like, to have you experienced this, this, and this? And it's just, I don't know. Anyway, that's my um, take on reasons to date with an eating disorder, which is, you know, in one line, go fuck yourself. I mean, just to know how influential this kind of thing has been on young women really changes it. The last thing I want to say about it, and something that I missed that is probably, like, relevant because I kind of just went off right off the bat, is, like, this is also coming sort of at the tail end of ranch culture, where I feel like we had a very different relationship with eating disorders. You know, Jessica Simpson was considered obese, right? Like maybe she wasn't the thinnest woman in the world, but like in what like conceivable universe is like Jessica Simpson an obese yeah, woman? Ridiculous. Like even at her highest weight, it's just like absurd. The aesthetic, you know, it wasn't heroin chic, but it was something that wasn't much better. It was like bleach your hair till it falls out, get the tan and be like five, seven and a hundred pounds. And yeah. that was sort of the aesthetic. Mainstream pornified look. Right. And eating disorders were sort of encouraged in that framework without any like real knowledge of like, what does that literally in practice mean it doesn't really mean looking like a playboy bunny it like you know i won't i won't like rant again but um i you know i think that's sort of another important important thing that we just 
because of body positivity, we've kind of forgotten that like that was a really big part of American culture for a really long time. Um, and people say, oh, like, you know, heroin chic was a blip on the radar. And like, that may be true. But like, uh, you know, saying that like Hillary Duff is a fat ass kind of wasn't. Oh, <laughs> was like, yeah, <laughs> right. And it wasn't really. I mean, heroin chic was like late 90s to early 2000s. I don't really have the timeline precise on that. But following that was you know, all the Olsen twins and Rachel Zoe's big moment, the stylist who put all those actresses in, in the layers, like the bag lady layers and the chunky jewelry. And um, when Lindsay Lohan and Paris Hilton were all having a really big moment. And I mean, all those starlets were rail thin with some combination of substance abuse and eating disorders. That went on for quite a while. Absolutely. And I, I, it always really, it bothers me that people is like, oh, let's go back to that. It's like, you know, we can have like a healthy appreciation for beauty, even thin people like forget, you know, like, let's not even sugarcoat it and say like fit people or whatever without, I mean, there's a difference between thin and sick. And I felt like it, it took the culture a long time and it still doesn't really, I think, <laughs> appreciate that difference. Um, all right. Well, anything else to say about? No, uh, no. I think, I think we've, we've just about yeah. put that one to bed. <laughs> um, all right. <laughs> Should we do the ladder theory next? Yeah. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, okay. So um, so the, the ladder theory, this isn't just one post. This is a website, laddertheory.com. A lot of this is sort of the foundation of manosphere thought. Uh, yeah, I guess <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> <laughs> this is where the whole idea of like the friend zone comes from. And like, you're either on this track or you're not. And it's all about the people. This guy comes up with a whole theory about like, and you wonder like, how serious are these people when they do this? I, I think he's serious when he says like, this is a pie chart and half of it, this is what women care about money and power. And then there's a third of it. That's just attraction, but we'll break that down into looks. But then there's a 10% that they don't care about. And like, this is for sure. And like, if you're higher on the ladder, cause you're someone they want to fuck more. It's like, you really think this is like how the world works, buddy. Do you? You're sick. All right, go ahead. Um, all right. So Sorry. the, the, <laughs> the introduction is, uh, the latter theory is a funny scientific explanation of how men and women are attracted to each other. It also covers such topics as why women sometimes just want to be friends, but men always want sex. It is based upon many years of sociological field testing and was first conceptualized in 1994 in Exeter, California by Dallas Lynn with acknowledgments to Jared Whitson for his role in formalizing the theory. Um, all right. So so a cute little website, uh, very uh, 90s homepage style. Um, yes. Underneath is, all right. So the first section is the foundation. Before we get to the core of the ladder theory, let's introduce a few lemmas. Lemma one, every time you meet someone, you you give them a quick mental rating. Just how this is done is based on your sex, like so. No. Nope. So, <laughs> the women's rating system. Things women say they care about but don't, 10%. Money, power, 50%. Attraction, 40%. And this is in a pie chart. Um, and then the man's rating system. Estimated chance she'll put out quickly, 30%. Looks, 60%. Other, 10%. Um, and then there is a, a little scenario at the, the bottom. It should be noted that this is not an entirely conscious process. To make it clear, here's an illustrative example of what really happens. Bob meets Jane, then Bob meets Connie. Now, the latter theory description goes like this. One, Bob meets Jane. Two, Bob sizes her up based on the above criterion. Three, Bob puts her on the ladder. Four, Bob meets Connie. Five, Bob sizes her up based on the above criterion. 
six, Bob puts her on the ladder above Jane. You could recognize this has gone on because Bob says, I'd like to fuck Jane, but not as much as I want to fuck Connie. I think that everyone has heard this or something like it enough times for us to accept it as axiomatic and move on. You might be thinking, well, what about Jane and Connie? We'll get to them next. The rating system. The graphs on the previous page were not thrown together arbitrarily. They represent years of field testing. <laughs> and and this, is, this is a common theme, like irreverently or not in like all manosphere blogs it's like they have all this like mysterious experience that they can't talk mm. about concretely mm-hmm. <laughs> yep i say this because this is invariably the section i take the most flack for although almost all guys who have not had the manhood stripped out of them know this intuitively as far as intellectual whores can determine the average female bitch has a rating system that works like this and then it has a woman's rating system pie chart again So the breakdown looks like money and power, 50%, attraction, 40%, things women say they care about but don't, 10%, intelligence, sense of humor, honesty, sensitivity, etc. As to the first point, that of money. (laughs) Well, most guys know that women dig guys with money. Would Donald Trump be fucking models if he wasn't rich? That question is rhetorical. Now, I don't believe this is wrong. I think it is just nature. But I also think women who are this way and it is almost all of you, should be honest and admit that they are basically whores and stop saying bad things about the so-called actual whores who are just trying to earn an honest living. Most women read this... (laughs) Most women read this and say something like, well, I'm not the average woman because blah, 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 not true, blah, blah, blah. My boyfriend loved her husband. Masseuse was poor, blah, blah, blah. If you thought something like this, you were very likely the average woman. If you read it and went, hmm... And then went back to doing physics, then you have a case. Looks are not to be discounted. He said, you know, women aren't in STEM. (laughs) No, it's just like. I see many girls revert revert to about a seventh grade emotional level when they see some guy at the club or some guy from a crappy movie. Really? I I don't. (laughs) I think everyone has seen this phenomena. I, I love how he like. He doesn't know the difference between phenomena, phenomenon, criteria. Oh, criteria. or criteria and criteria. And it seems to have become an alarming trend in women of increasing age. The attraction category is broken down further in the next section. This is a change from previous versions of the latter theory that included looks here instead of attraction. I feel this is a more accurate depiction as evidenced by experiment and peer review. The last 10% was my effort to give women benefit of the doubt. A common question men ask of women is, tell me what you want in a man, which is almost like asking how many guys she slept with an invitation to be lied to, because she'll almost invariably answer with some combination of sense of humor, intelligence, sensitivity, emotional stability. As far as I can tell, this is mostly rubbish. But in an effort to be fair, I have included this since there seem to be a few rare cases of this, just none that I've ever seen. Another thing to watch out for is the code words women use. Here's a translation guide for dealing with women. Says, I want a man who is motivated and has goals. Means, I want a rich man. Says, I want a man who knows how to treat a woman. Means, I want a rich man. Says, he's from a really good family. Means, he's from a really rich family. I'm sure you get the point. Let's move on. I will say, before we move on, that that translation part, actually, that checks out. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. I was going to say, I, I actually give him props for that one. Here, here's really the meat of ladder theory, which is ladder construction. Now for the core of the theory. Since everyone you meet has a rating, it is only natural to stack them up on a ladder. Let's look at the ladder of some example man, the man's ladder. All right, so then it's a list of names, and it, it, you know it's a ladder. There's 
so at the very bottom it says abyss so which is you would not fuck and then right above that is would fuck drunk and not admit to it then right above that is would fuck drunk and admit to it and then at the very top would actively like to fuck <laughs> yeah. so it should be self-evident if you were following this at all that the people you want to have sex with the most will be at the top of the ladder descending down to the bottom of the ladder we pass the following people the people we really want who may even be out of our league are on top then come the people we like moving further down we pass the people who we would fuck if we were intoxicated and would admit to doing it later and at the bottom are people we would fuck drunk and would lie about doing it later clinging to the bottom are the girls that are wolf ugly these are women so ugly you would chew your own arm off to get away from them rather than fuck them usually fake teeth or the loss of several hundred pounds can move a woman up from wolf ugly one thing i actually want to point out here before i move on is early manosphere writing actually does acknowledge the femcel which is something that you see go away mm -hmm. as we move on and it's very clear it's like these women are few in number um they're disfigured or like they don't have teeth or something but they do exist and i think it's super interesting that you know in the 20 years that follow this like logosphere development the acknowledgement of that like quickly just evaporates yeah oh. yeah it's become so much more exaggerated another thing is and this is true of, of the red pill and the manosphere in general apart from incels is you know like you said the, the part i agreed what women say meaning i want I want a rich man is like his kind of hang up is women wanting rich men. Whereas in the incel sphere, it became looks above that, which is so just distorted to me that so many men even think that it's mostly looks more looks than it is money and power. Because, okay, I think we can cop to the fact that like most people value money and people that are tend to be more shallow will value that. Like they see it as a reflection of somebody's worth it's a way to take care of yourself and your family, like all these things. There is a, you know, kind of evo psych and sociological explanation for that. So the fact that the early manosphere and earlier manosphere, that this was more true, that it was the hang up was like women being gold diggers, but actually caring about money and power. And then it became all about looks like that was a strange direction for it to go. Do you have any theories as to why that is? Yeah, I do actually, because I've had to think about it a lot. Um, well, the reason that they would probably give, though I, I don't know that anyone has given it to me, if it were considered, would be that with the rise of like women's options financially, because they don't need money and power, like they secure it for themselves. Like that's what you'll see incels talking about all the time now. I think red pillars too, but less so. That women now have have all the money and all the career opportunities and all the education, so they don't value that in men anymore. So they're back to like this base. Uh, they don't even need like, you know, stable father figures for their child because they have it all, like as if all women just have all of that. So it's just their pure, raw, unadulterated libido and desire for, for Chad and for these pretty boys that no woman I know would even really be attracted to. But that's kind of, I think, their explanation. And where I go with it, to be a little bit more meta and a little bit more nuanced is I think that with some things that they would say that, that I acknowledge are true, like with some of the attitudes of women's empowerment and some always hesitant to say this, but to a degree like feminization of young men and boys, like in schools and socially, and then social media and things like that. I think that young men, because they're not as differentiated from young women in terms of what they're encouraged to do socially and how they're encouraged to behave, 
with social media, they're beginning to develop more of the things that would have previously, I think, been more in the domain of young women, like a real fixation on appearance, um, analyzing how attractive other men are, like this whole hang up, analyzing their own photos, like ratings of of young men, like going on photo feeler and doing all that. Like for, for young men to do that was not a thing when I was in high school. Not at all. Young women always did it. There was always that fixation on appearance, but never for young men. And I think somewhat like politically and culturally, the climate of trying to kind of equalize everyone has had an impact on it. But I think like with everything, it's more social media. But yeah, I think that explains a lot of it. I think so too. I mean, I, I, I won't go too deep down this rabbit hole, but it's it's interesting, like in in societies that are like very atomized and like work centric and tech centric, um, appearance become like becomes one like very sterilized and two very feminized for both sexes. Mm-hmm. It seems like you see you see this in like uh, Korea, and Korea, Japan. yeah, yeah, and it's and you also see it in Brazil. Um, so it's it's like I've been trying. It's there's something that's like going on right in each of not that Brazil is quite the same as the US, uh, Korea or Japan, but there's like something that's going on in like these sort of like more superficial um, uh, cultural environments that feminizes men. And I, I think there's some extra dimension that I, I just don't know enough about the, the uh, Brazil, yeah. It's really strange, but back to ladders. Now for the big difference between the male and female ladders. Uh, so men have one ladder. Basically it's like men either want to fuck you or they don't. And then women have two ladders and like a separate abyss. Uh, the, so the abyss <laughs> is point of no return. Then there's a real ladder and then there's a friend's ladder. All right. The first thing to notice here is that a woman has not one, but two ladders. This is because in addition to the normal ladder, a woman also has a friend's ladder. The friend's ladder is where a woman puts guys that she considers just friends. More to the point where she puts guys who don't get to have sex with her. The the problem arises because a woman never lets a guy know which ladder he is on. Obviously, there is a huge difference or gap between these two ladders. It's in this gap that kisses of death are delivered and intellectual whores are made. All a man can do is go for it and make a move on a girl, ask her out, try to kiss her, write her a love note or whatever. If he's on the good ladder, fine. If he's on a friend's ladder, this is a case of ladder jumping. The man is trying to jump the gap from the friend's ladder to the real ladder. The girl has two choices at this point. She can let him on the ladder and all is well, or more likely she can kick him in the head and off the ladder. If you look, you'll see (laughs) that below the ladder is the abyss. What was it that Nietzsche said about a man being on a rope stretched over an abyss? Well, it's worse than he thought. There is no rope. So the man falls into the abyss. The abyss isn't really as bad as it sounds. Mostly it's a period of self-loathing, embarrassment, and of course, utter awkwardness with the girl in question if they are talking at all. Okay, so he he offers three different scenarios. Scenario one, Tom meets Jane. She's pretty and seems interesting to talk to. Tom and Jane start hanging out and talking more and more. Tom develops an attraction to, to Jane, which is interesting, develops an attraction. He's telling yeah. himself here. Yeah. And, and one day tries to kiss her. Jane tells Tom she doesn't think of him that way, and she wants to remain friends. The next few weeks, contact between the two falls off. Jane starts fucking an outlaw biker. Ladder (laughs) theory explanation. Tom met Jane. Tom was immediately placed on the friend's ladder. Tom didn't know this. Tom tried to jump ladders. Jane kicked Tom in the head rather than not lead him on, 
and sent him hurtling into the abyss below. The outlaw biker was not on her friend's ladder. They never are, but rather on the good <laughs> ladder. Scenario two, Tom meets Jane. She's cute and seems smart. After an appropriate amount of time, he asks her out on a date. She accepts and they have what seems to be a perfectly nice date. Tom thinks he has a chance with Jane. He asks her out again. She says no, either explicitly or by never returning his phone call. Tom has no idea what the hell just happened. Jane starts fucking an unemployed alcoholic. <laughs> this is where he begins to win me over with this stuff. Ladder theory explanation. Jane misrepresented which ladder Tom was on. He thought he was on the good ladder because of her acceptance of the date. Mistake. This led to an unintentional ladder jump. He was kicked into the abyss. In this situation, Jane often wants to stay friends because you were so interesting and funny or some shit like that. <laughs> if this happens to you, you are most likely an intellectual whore. I'm sorry. This is most likely to be a ninja bitch. Scenario three. I don't totally know what he means by that, but um, scenario three. A girl says any of the following to you. You're like a brother to me. You're like a big teddy bear. I feel like I can talk to you about anything. You're so <laughs> nice. Can you help me with my homework? Ladder theory explanation. You were on the friend's ladder. So sorry. You can see that a lot of problems can be avoided, though sadly not problem two, by declaring as soon as possible to a girl that you will not be friends under any circumstances. You can explain that she's too attractive or you can be blunt and say you don't want to bend your friends over a table and fuck them, but would rather <laughs> play poker and go to the races with them, thus disqualifying her from friendship. As long as you are clear, this may scare a girl away. But if it does, what would you want with such a skittish twit anyway? Next, we'll explore some of the consequences of the latter and applications in everyday life. So what's interesting is, he doesn't actually explain like what happens when you're at different points of the real ladder or what it means to be on different points of the friend's ladder. I suspect it's because it isn't really a ladder at all. Right. We there can, isn't. <laughs> so, it, I mean, it, go, it goes on like there's, you know, hidden variables in the ladder. There's another section that says, yes, Virginia, they all want to bang you. If a, mind, if a man finds you attractive, you can't be friends, common criticisms, misconceptions, manifestations, consequences, ladder songs. <laughs> I remember now that I did read this back in the day. I remember that intellectual horror kind of like reminded me of reading this and, and finding it funny then and finding it funnier now when you get to the examples, I think the examples are important because like you said, first of all, there isn't a ladder. I mean, do you have a ladder in your head ever? Um, have you ever? Oh, eh, no, I I don't know. Maybe. Kind of actually. Yeah. There, there's sort of a ladder. Uh, not, not quite like, not as described. I, I have one ladder. <laughs> yeah. In your life, like where you kind of might stack people up. I don't, yeah. Even that it's a little hard for me to relate to, but I believe that men have them. I do think, you know, the, the idea about like uh, there are there are no friendships between men and women, especially with women that men find attractive, which is most of them. That comes from, and he includes this uh, a scene from When Harry Met Sally, where Billy Crystal is telling McGrath this, and that's an old, kind of timeless observation that many people have. I, I can relate to it and, you know, it might often be true. Again, I think it's more reflective of the way men think. And I think that that's true of a lot of this stuff. What's funny about the manosphere as a whole is that it's men who are trying to understand women, right? Like that's the whole thing. PUAs and all of it, whatever they, they ultimately claim, whatever the thesis is, like it really is kind of like a quest to understand women for me, driven by like a real longing for women, right? And to understand them. But it's coming from the most male-brained 
like these ladders, these ratings, the fact that men have women in a hierarchy of, you know, attractiveness and everyone's just kind of like, well, who would I rather fuck than that? Like, I kind of believe that's true for men. You know, I'm not going to claim to know for a fact, but I believe that's probably true for a lot of men. That's fine. It's not really true for women. Not like that. And that's kind of how a lot of this stuff is. It begins with this conceit that it's like hard and fast and true science, which it's it's so not that it, it irritates me. But then when you get into the examples of like the unemployed alcoholic and stuff, uh, I'm like, okay, there's like, there's some humor in this again. Like this, these are personal experiences that he's had. And it's, it's funny, you know, it's funny because there is truth to it. Like, yeah, they never are on the friend ladder because why would a, women don't like those people because they're awful, but if they do like them, it's clearly in spite of them being awful. So it's probably not their great personality. Yeah. You know, I find like ladder theory, like more endearing. I mean, for the reasons that you said, then like anything on Return of Kings. um, Hmm, God, that's yeah. It's, I mean, because I guess there, there is a, there is a truth to it, but I, I, I think that you're, you're right that like ultimately there is, you know, I mean, men are just so confident that like they, they get it and women don't and that there's no yeah. flexibility for it. I mean, my question is like, how do they explain like Serge Gainsbourg? You know, like it, it's just, how do they explain? Countless, countless. Right. There's so many different, part, yeah. there, there's so many examples of it and there's no, they give you like no recourse to explain yourself or to offer counter examples. And so we give ourselves this recourse to discuss counterexamples. And we'll continue to do so next week on part two of The Manosphere. Bye.